Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom again. We're going to start our, our uh, continue today with our series on the Book of Romans. We've been in for many, many months. Today's uh, part 19, and today we're going to look at the first part of Romans chapter 12. Uh, so, we, so turn with me if you can to Romans 12, beginning in verse 1. And Paul says this, uh, based on everything else we've read up through 1 through 11 in Romans, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. And don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be metamorphosized, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has, has one body but with many members, and these members don't all have the same function, so also in Messiah we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's to encourage, uh, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Amen. Now, notice that chapter 12 starts with the word, therefore. Uh, so in light of everything we've just studied over these last six months uh, in, in Romans chapters 1 through 11, uh, about God and sin and repentance and salvation and the gospel and the Holy Spirit, Paul says, therefore, do this. Therefore, live like this. Paul says here that if you really understand the gospel, and if you know Yeshua and are filled with his spirit, then you will live like this. You offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And you won't be conformed to this world, but you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Uh, so here in Romans 12, we'll put this on the, on the overhead. We're going to see uh, three things. Number one, the essence of life in Yeshua. Uh, what it means to be a Messianic believer, uh, to be a Yeshua follower. Number two, three key aspects of the believer's life. And number three, the power we need to live this Messiah-filled life. Uh, so the essence uh, and the aspects and the power of life in Yeshua. So first, the essence of life in Yeshua. And the essence is a striking phrase Paul uses. He says to uh, uh, be, be a living sacrifice. Uh, well, well what's, what's a living sacrifice? Strange term. Uh, because sacrifices, as you know, were, were always killed. Uh, to present a sacrifice was to put the animal to death. So on one level, Paul's saying, we're to present our life, almost like in the, in the Greek here, a living killing, <laughs> uh, to die to self, to live a self-sacrificial life. And Paul's choice of words here is deliberately paradoxical. Uh, Paul's readers, people reading this letter, the Greeks, the Romans, the Hebrews, they would all know what animal sacrifices are. Sacrifices happen in temples all over the world including in the tabernacle and the temple in Jerusalem. 
So the readers of the book of Romans would have understood the idea of animal sacrifices being killed and offered up to God. But to call it a living sacrifice is deliberately paradoxical. It's Paul's way of saying that, that life in Yeshua is both like and unlike uh, the Old Testament sacrifices. Both like and unlike. So let's put that on the overhead. First, uh, let me take you, give you two ways in which uh, it's unlike uh, the Old Testament sacrifices. Life in Yeshua, walking in Messiah, is unlike the temple sacrifices in two ways. First, the old sacrifices were bloody. They were bloody sacrifices. Why? Because they were atoning for sin. Sin needs punishment. Uh, the sacrifices represent the fact that punishment is due for sin. And therefore, the bloody sacrifices in the Mosaic Covenant were ways of getting atonement, of forgiveness of sins, getting right with God. But that's absolutely not true for living for and in Yeshua. You don't say, Lord, I'm going to live for you in all these ways. I'm going to live the life you want me to live. And then, when I do all this, you'll forgive me. And then, you'll accept me. And then, you'll, you'll take me to heaven. No. Yeshua's sacrifice is the once and for all atoning sacrifice that ends all guilt offerings and, and sin offerings. Yeshua's sacrifice is radically different. It's in a category all by itself. So now our sacrifices are also, therefore, radically different. Uh, they're offerings of gratitude and thanksgiving uh, and praise and worship. So first, when Paul says to be a living sacrifice, it does not mean that you are atoning for your own sins and, and procuring a God's favor. No. And second, life in Yeshua is unlike the, the Old Testament sacrifices because the Old Covenant sacrifices were over once you made the sacrifice, when you brought your offering, when you brought the animal or your grain or whatever it happened to be, once you offered it, it was over. Uh, it burned up on the altar, and it was over. But a living sacrifice is never over. But, you know, the trouble with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. <laughs> a living sacrifice means that every day, every hour, every moment, right now, You've got to deliberately and consciously and continually and perpetually offer yourself to Yeshua. Offer yourself to Him. It's constant. It's never over. It's meant to be constant. And it's intense. And so in these ways, being a living sacrifice, offering our whole self to Messiah, it's not like uh, the Old Testament sacrifices. But in what way is it alike? Is it like them? Now, Paul wouldn't have used this, this word sacrifice uh, with this word killing implied within it unless something was put to death. Something is killed. So something is similar in this way to the, to the old sacrifices. Well, what is it that's similar? I'll tell you. And we'll put this on the overhead. You're not living a Yeshua-centered life unless you put to death the idea that you have the right to choose your life to live the way you want. You have the right to self-determination, to control your own life. And I know this is so politically incorrect for me to say, because there has never been a culture in the history of the world more adverse to what it means to live a Yeshua-centered, self-sacrificial life 
than 21st century America. Because what it means to be a living sacrifice for Messiah is that you put to death the right to live the life as you choose. You put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. You put to death the idea that you know best what should happen in your life. You put it all to death. You die to self. You give it all over to God. Because you were bought with a price. The precious blood of Yeshua. You are not your own. And so you agree to trust him that he knows what's best for your life. And it feels like a death to say, Lord, you know what's best for my life. I don't know. So I'm going to let, let go of control over my life. I'm going to give it to you, Yeshua. I'm going to trust you because you, Lord, know best. And here's what you say. You know, in your word, Lord, it says this, and I'm going to trust your word in my life. Whether I like it or not, I'm going to obey your word. It's not up to me, Lord, to pick and choose what I like and what I don't like in your word. And at times, it, it, it feels like a death. But on the other side is life. That's why it's a living sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that leads to life. Here's an illustration of what it means to take your hands off your life and to say, Lord, I no longer decide on my own what's right or wrong or what's best for me. I go by your word, Lord. I no longer decide what happens in my life. Uh, I accept and trust what you send me. Now, to get across this, this idea of, of a living sacrifice, listen to this true story of a young woman who, in the 1930s, when she was 15 years old, she went to some Christian conference, and she was moved by the message, and she decided to give her life to Messiah in a special way. And she made a commitment to go into lifetime missionary service. Again, this is a teenage girl in America in the 1930s. And she said, my heart is to go to China for lifetime missionary service. Now, a lot of young people make vows like that, and they last for, for a month or two, but she stuck with it. And as the years went by, uh, through high school and then college, she kept her resolve, and she did her research, and she made her preparations, and she studied the language, and then she went to these missionary agencies, and then she learned how difficult and how dangerous it was to go on an overseas mission, especially back in the 1930s. Because thousands of missionaries around the world were killed in the 30s and 40s, uh, in, particularly in Asia, uh, due to all the violence and, and the chaos and the persecution and the wars. But she was committed to go. And she knew it was dangerous. That They told her about this. And all the missionary sending organizations that said, okay, if you really still want to go, you have to do two things for us to be able to send you. Number one, you need to do all this cross-cultural training uh, and Bible and theology and, and evangelism training. And number two, you must be married. No mission agency sent single American women to Asia in the 1930s. It, it simply wasn't done. It, it wasn't safe. Uh, you wouldn't last more than a month or two. Uh, it was not culturally accepted, even in much of Asia today, let alone in the 1930s, for single women to be operating on their own. So she, they told her that you had to first be married. Uh, so one night at the end of high school, she sits down. She says, Lord, I take my hands off my life. 
I give you everything. I don't care about a comfortable life. I don't care about money. I don't care about a safe life. I give you my whole life. Everyone else is getting ready, Lord, for all sorts of of fun things. But I'm going to go and preach the gospel in China. I'm going to give myself to missionary service. I'm going to do all the, I'm going to do all the training that I need. There's just one thing I need from you, Lord. I need a husband. So she goes off to Bible college. She studies mission work, which was not good preparation for any normal, regular occupation uh, that she, she could have gone into. But she knew what she wanted to do. She knew what she was called to do. So she focused on Bible and theology and cross-cultural training and, and missionary training. And after four years of Bible college, still no husband or any prospects for a husband. So then she goes off to missionary training school, which is kind of the equivalent of our master's degree in a, in a seminary or in a yeshiva. Uh, again, at the end of Baba College, no husband, no boyfriend, uh, no prospects. Then at the end of two years of this postgraduate missionary training school, no husband, no boyfriend, no prospects. And the night before she was about to graduate, she says, on that night... And before I was about to graduate, she writes in her journal, I sat down in my dorm room, an angry young woman, and I cried out, God, how can you do this to me? I have nothing else to do. I have nowhere else to go. I put everything into this. I have no other prospects. I've committed my whole life to you. I've taken my hands off my life. I gave my life to you. And I only asked for you, for you, uh, from you one thing, and you didn't do it. How can you do this to me? And she wrestled and she struggled. And incredibly that night, she realized something. She suddenly realized she had been kidding herself all these years. She suddenly realized she was not miserable because she had taken her hands off her life. She was miserable because she never had. She realized she had developed within her mind this idea of a heroic life. She had developed an idea of a noble life, a life whereby she said to herself, if I could live like that, then I would know I have value. Then I would know I'm a person of worth. She had this idea of a noble, heroic life And she's telling God, that's the life you've got to give me. And telling God, and here's how you've got to do it. And here's how you've got to get it for me. And she was doing everything she could, basically, to put God in her debt, so to speak, so he'd have to do it. And so she finally realized, I've never really taken my hands off my life. I was using God. I wasn't serving him. I was telling him what he had to do. And then she said, that night for the first time, I took my hands off my life. I said, Lord, you are in control. You know where I should go. You know what I should do. You know best. That night, I took my hands off my life. Now let me ask you, If that young woman, who spent a third of her life getting ready for missionary service, saying goodbye to everything, goodbye to fun, to safety, to comfort, to everything, 
thought that she had taken her hands off of her life, and that might realize for the first time she had never done it, had never really taken her hands off of her life, if that was her situation, do you really think that you have? Do you really think that you have taken your hands off your life? I doubt it. I doubt it. Why did she finally take her hands off her life? She wrote in her journal, I knew he was infinitely wise and completely loving. Because he's infinitely wise, I'll do everything he says, even if I don't like it. If, and uh, if you say, uh, well, I trust the Bible, but I don't like this and this and this in the Bible, so I'll do this part, but I won't do that part, then you're on the throne of your life. You're picking and choosing. Uh, uh, you still belong to yourself. You're still deciding how things should go, how your life should go. And therefore, you are not a living sacrifice. You're not assuming he's infinitely wiser than you are which is the height of foolishness. And God isn't only infinitely wise, he's also completely good, infinitely loving. Even things that look like they make no sense, uh, you need to be willing to say, I don't know what's best for my life. I don't know what the right thing is. But I trust you, Lord, that you have my best interest at heart because you are infinitely good. For this young woman said, because he's infinitely wise and infinitely loving, I'll do everything he says, whether I like it or not. And I'll accept everything he brings into my life and trust him, whether it makes sense to me or not. And when she assumed that he was infinitely wiser than she was, and that he loved her even more than she loved herself, then she was free. She became free. The reason why it's a living sacrifice is that she says, I'm free now. Think about this. Because she was saying, I will obey you if you do this, Lord. She used to say her whole first part of her life, I'll obey you, Lord, if you do this, this, and this, God. If you give me this life and open this door and answer this prayer. In essence, what she was doing was she was saying, I will obey if. And whatever is on the other side of that if is the real thing you're living for? Is the real thing you're worshiping? Is the real thing you're sacrificing for? And it's not God. Now, do you see where at the end of this verse 1, Paul says to be a living sacrifice is your spiritual worship. I'll put this on the overhead here. The word worship, uh, in Greek it's lateria, and in Hebrew it's avudah. The same word also means service. And one of the ways you can translate the word spiritual here uh, is the word true. So what this is saying is, give yourself, sacrifice yourself, lay yourself out for God, put yourself in, in service to him, make him the thing you live for. Sacrifice for him. This is your true service. Uh, this is your spiritual worship. Because if the truth be known, you're, you're sacrificing for, for something anyways. You're worshiping something. You're laying your life down for something. Do you see that today? Do you, do you realize that? And, and at this point, some of you might be saying, this is what it means to follow Yeshua? 
You know, whatever happened to that great message of, of peace and prosperity and groovy feelings? <laughs> Maybe I'll give this Yeshua life a pass. Because I want to be free. If this is you, please don't kid yourself. Everybody lives for something. You have to live for something. And whatever it is you're living for, you're sacrificing for. You're sacrificing for something. You're in service to something, one way or another. And so you're not free, like this, this woman, woman finally became. You're not. Just think, you, you think you are, of course, uh, but you're enslaved to whatever you worship and whatever you live for. And there's many, many things in this world we live for, right? Uh, money, uh, popularity, fame, uh, beauty, uh, our bodies, uh, academic or athletic or artistic ability and achievement, uh, career, relationships, sex, personal peace and safety, social justice issues, uh, on and on and on. So, for example, if you say, oh, I don't know if I believe in God, or I don't know if I really want to commit my whole life to him, uh, but my career, that's really important to me. It will drive you into the ground. Or if you say there's one person in my life, uh, uh, and, and the love of this person is the main thing in my life, do you realize if that person rejects you, it will devastate you? Even if that person just falls apart, it'll devastate you. You are already sacrificing for something. You're already worshiping something. You are already in service to something. And therefore, you are not free. And if you say, oh, yes, I am. I'm totally independent. I don't give my heart to anyone. I don't, I don't give my heart to anything. I'm an absolutely independent person. I belong only to myself. No, you don't. Because if you're that kind of totally independent person, you will die lonely and alone, a sacrifice on the altar of your own independence, because you're serving your independence as your God, and it will flay you. So you're going to have to serve something. You're going to have to sacrifice for something. You're going to have to give your life for something. And only God is infinitely wise and infinitely kind and infinitely good and infinitely loving. Anything else will consume you and destroy you. So make your life a living sacrifice to the Lord. If that young woman hadn't really taken her hands off of her life all those years, do you think you really have? All right, number two. The second thing we want to look at is the different aspects of what it means to be a living sacrifice. Three aspects. What does it look like? And the text here discusses three things, ideas about what it means to be a living sacrifice. Being a living sacrifice is going to affect your life in three ways. First, it's going to affect all of your life. Notice how it says in, in Romans 12, verse 1, I urge you, brethren, in light of God's mercies, to offer your, quote, bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, that reference to bodies would have been very strange to Paul's Greek and Roman uh, readers. Very strange. Because the Greeks and the Romans, they thought, they thought the body was unimportant. Only the spirit and the soul was good. Uh, and Eastern religions, like Buddhism and Hinduism, they believe that the material body, uh, our physical life, is actually just an illusion. And the purpose of religion and contemplation and meditation is to transcend all that, to get into the realm of the spiritual. Now, when Paul says, I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
He doesn't mean I want only your bodies. Uh, He doesn't mean I don't care about your soul. No. In fact, the whole rest of Romans 12 shows that's not the case. Uh, That that, that our inner attitudes and and thoughts are important. But what he's saying here in verse 1 is that to make your life a living sacrifice, it's not enough just to get the right doctrines and to have your own little inner peace. Because your body is how your soul acts in this world. Your soul can do nothing. Your your thoughts can do nothing. Your feelings can do nothing except through your body. And therefore, when the Lord says, I want your bodies, what he's really saying is, I want every part of your life, public and private, individual and social, inner and outer, That's what Yeshua is saying through Paul here. And then when verse 2, Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. One of the things it means to be a living sacrifice is for you to think out with your mind the implications of Romans chapters 1 to 11, which is the gospel, for every area of your life. And if you're not doing that, if you're not making your whole life then a living sacrifice... Let me give you an example of how to do this. Francis Schaeffer, many, many years ago, gave a lecture about something uh, provocative uh, about money and Christian business owners, uh, believers who own their own business or their own employers, uh, employed other people. And he said the Bible, yes, the Bible definitely teaches free enterprise uh, and the right of private property. But then he said the Bible also teaches compassionate use of that property. And we see this, for example, in the Torah laws about gleaning uh, and the corners of your field uh, and the sabbatical year, places where the Torah commands us to let the poor benefit from a portion of the owner's private property. And based on this, Francis Schaeffer said uh, that where a business owner is a Bible-believing Yeshua follower, it would be a great testimony if less profit was taken from the, by the owner, taken out of the business by the owner, and instead he paid his workers more than the going rate. He said it would be better in proclaiming the gospel if the profits uh, were, were not maximized at the same rate as the rest of the world, uh, and then simply the owner donates them to charity or religious causes, etc. Uh, uh, but, but rather he, he gives more of the profit to his workers. So do you hear what he's saying? He's taking this gleaning idea from the Torah which said if you own a field, you weren't allowed to take the full profit out of that field. You weren't allowed to harvest out to the edges. Uh, you left some grain in the field for the poor that they could, 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 could come, uh, like we see in the book of Ruth, uh, and with their own labor, take some of the profit for themselves to live on. You weren't allowed to take the full profit and then maybe give it away some of it to charity. No, you had to limit your profit so that more people could actually work and make a profit from your field. And yes, they had to work. They had to harvest it. It was not a handout. And Francis Schaeffer said, if everybody in the world, if everywhere in the world believers were known, they had this reputation, believing business owners and employers were known for taking less profit out so they could pay their employees a better wage, that would actually be a better testimony for spreading the gospel than if you took the same profit out as everybody else and then just gave your excess away to charity. Now, Maybe you like this idea. Maybe you don't. That's not the point. The point is, he's being transformed by the renewing of his mind. 
He's using his mind to try to apply the Bible in every area of his life. That's the point. He's being transformed by thinking out the implications of the Bible for every area of your life. So let me ask you, are you doing that? Are you? Again, you may agree or disagree with this particular application, but the question is, are you using your mind to apply the Word of God to every area of your life? Or or instead, are you letting the world squeeze and conform you into its mold? Are you being transformed by the renewing of your mind to conform to God's Word and to a biblical worldview? Because if you're not, then you're not a living sacrifice. Because being a living sacrifice means you're thinking this out for every area of your life. Second aspect is that living sacrifice not only affects all of your life, it also affects, Paul says, your inner self-life. Look at Romans 12.3. For by, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God's distributed to each one of you. Paul's saying, if you understand the gospel, you'll not think too highly of yourself, but rather you'll have sober, meaning an accurate view of yourself. You're not thinking too low of yourself either, by the way. Everyone in the world usually has a self-image based on effort and achievement. You say to yourself, you know, I'm a good person, I'm a worthy person, because I do this or because I am this. And if you're doing what you, what you say your standards are, then you're going to feel high, you're going to feel good about yourself. Maybe you're going to even feel superior to others. And if you fail, you feel terrible about yourself and you feel inferior. But a Yeshua follower has access to the, an utterly unique source of identity and self-image in Messiah that nobody else has. Because the gospel says you're a sinner You deserve to be lost, but you're completely loved in God because of what Yeshua has done for you. And that both, at the same time, humbles you down, knowing that you are a sinner, and it also keeps you from having too high a view of yourself, but it also lifts you up to the skies because Yeshua loved you and did all this for you and died for you, suffered the wrath of the Father for you, literally went to hell for you. And based on that divine love for you, you can never hate yourself. And if you do hate yourself, or on the other hand, if you're you're too puffed up about yourself, then you have not brought the gospel into your inner being. And to be a living sacrifice isn't just to to live some kind of good life, because lots of people who aren't even believers can live good lives. The rich young ruler was leading a good life. The essence of being a Yeshua follower is not merely living a good life, although it's not less than that, but it's the reason, it's the power, it's the inner motives, it's being a living sacrifice. It's the giving up of your right to self-determination that characterizes a Yeshua follower and that transforms you from the inside out. Number three, the third aspect we're told here is that if you make this decision, this hard commitment become a living sacrifice, and you begin to work this out in every area of your life, then thirdly, you become a servant. 
So being a living sacrifice affects not only, number one, all of your life, and number two, your self-life, how you think about yourself, but number three, it affects your service life. Which brings us to the last part of this passage, uh, which talk, talks about various gifts and abilities. And these are all, Paul, Paul enumerates here are all abilities to minister. Uh, he lists things like, like preaching and administration and counseling and serving. Yes, I'm paraphrasing here. He also lists mercy, caring for the poor, uh, leading. These are all ministry abilities. These are all things that people do to minister in the body in the local congregation, uh, to serve in the shul. I want you to know two things about these abilities. First, every believer has some of these gifts. Look at Romans 12, 6. Paul says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. And every believer is different. This verse also says we have different gifts. To each are given different gifts. And this means on the one hand, there shouldn't be, there, there shouldn't be anyone here who is not involved in some ministry in some service. Messiah faith knows nothing about backbenchers or pew warmers. Everyone is to be involved. And if you don't know, don't know where to serve, just look for, for where there's a need. You know, here, for example, we have lots of needs. We have needs for ushers and greeters and, and hospitality folks to interact with new visitors. We have need for kitchen workers. We have need for junior Shabbat and bar bar mitzvah teachers, children's teachers, for, for musicians, for evangelists, or for Torah readers, for setup and cleanup and takedown. There's lots of ways to serve and to minister and to get involved. And when you come to the shul, that should be your attitude. How can I serve? How can I meet needs that are here? Where can I minister to, to others? Yeshua said in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life is a ransom for many. And the, stu- we, the, stu- the student is uh, we the student, right? And the student is not above his teacher. The slave is not above his master. So if this was Yeshua's attitude about serving, how can we do any less? We're called to walk in the footsteps of our master, Yeshua, and to likewise take on the role of a servant. And so you cannot be truly following Yeshua if you come to Shul just to be served and not to serve. So you must learn not only to receive gospel ministry, but to give it out as well. And also notice, everybody's different. Everyone has different gifts. Uh, We're a body, Paul says. Uh, The finger is not a foot. Uh, The eye is not an ear. Uh, And here's the implication. Every single believer is as unique as a snowflake, as unique as as a fingerprint. You have certain experiences in your life, certain gifts, certain abilities and talents that God gave to you which means that you are here today at Eskayim for a reason. God has led you here because you have certain gifts that we need. And it also means that because of your gifts and where you happen to live, there are some people only you can touch. There are some people in your neighborhood or your work or your network of contacts that only you can reach. And they won't be touched and they won't be reached if you just see yourself as a passive receiver of information at shul and having your own spiritual needs met, and don't also see yourself as a servant and a minister. God has a great adventure prepared for you. 
but you need to be willing to pursue it. If you come to shul or any other congregation for that matter, and you don't serve, you are resisting the Holy Spirit's will for your life. Because the will of the Holy Spirit for your life has to do with the gifts that he's given you and the experiences he's given you. And there's people out there with your name written on them, if you will, uh, because the Lord wants you and has equipped you to minister to them in a unique way. And if your life has truly been changed because you've made yourself a living sacrifice, then you won't just be a passive observer at shul. But you, you say you'll come up to one of our, uh, the leaders here and you'll say, please show me what I can do to help, you know, where I can serve. So lastly, number one, we have the essence of life in Yeshua. I'll put this on the overhead. Number two, three aspects of life in Yeshua. And now the thirdly, finally, the power you need to live this life. The essence of, of being a Yeshua follower isn't just living a, a good life, but why you live a good life and the power for living that life. That's what's distinctive. Now, lots of people who aren't Yeshua followers lead good lives. They love their neighbor. Uh, they care for the poor. They keep their promises. Uh, they're people of charity and integrity and, on- and generosity and honesty. And that's a good thing. Imagine what a rotten place this world would be if the only ones who were ever halfway decent were born-again believers. A tiny percentage of the world's population. But what makes Yeshua followers different isn't just that they're people of being honest and, and caring for the poor and keeping their promises, but they have a power in doing that. They have a unique inner power in doing that. And this inner power will give you consistency and durability in living this good life that no one else has access to. Do you know what that power is? It's a new motive. Uh, why, if you don't believe in the gospel, why lead a good life? What's their motive? Well, some people do it out of custom. That's just the way they were brought up. Some do it out of prudence. They say, there's no, there's no really no right and wrong. There's really no right and wrong. There's no moral absolutes. But it's the prudent thing to do, uh, to live a good life and to do good to others and, and to help everybody else. That's the golden rule. So some do it out of custom. Some do it out of prudence and logic. Some do it out of, many do it out of religion. They're afraid. God's going to punish me if I don't do good and, and, and live, live right. So, so well, fear, uh, uh, punishment, uh, and logic, and custom, they aren't going to get you to live as you ought to live when no one else is looking. It's not going to get you to live the good life all of your life. What believers have is the opposite of all these things. We have an inner joy and an inner love that pulls us and motivates us from the inside out. It's, it's a joyous pull from the inside, not a kind of begrudging external force from the outside. And here's how this works. Paul says again, Romans 12:1, I urge you, brothers, and this word urge in the Greek, you know what it means? Urge. <laughs> it's not a command. Paul is appealing to you. And then he says, I urge you, brothers, in view, Romans 12, 1, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies. This word, in view, it's not an intellectual word. It's a heart word. He says, look at the mercies. Look at his mercies. If you see the Lord's mercies, then you'll be able to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. 
And this word offer is also very important. It means voluntarily. Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous uh, 20th century British uh, preacher and, and medical doctor. He tells a story about another doctor he knew who had a little dog. And every day he'd walk that dog on a leash in one of the parks in London. Uh, same place every day. And the little dog, he always strain at the leash, wanting to get out, wanting to get away, wanting to, to run free. So one day the doctor, this other doctor, says to himself, I know this dog pretty well. I'm going to risk it. I'm going to unleash him. And he does. And immediately the dog takes off like a bullet. And within a few seconds, he's out of sight. And the doctor's heart sinks a bit. He's kind of anxious, but he decides, I'm going to keep walking the same path, my normal route, and he follows the path. About ten minutes later, to his great relief and joy, he sees a little gray lightning bolt in the distance uh, coming in his direction. <laughs> and the dog comes running up to him. Who knows what it was chasing? You know, a rabbit, a squirrel, who knows? But it comes running right alongside his master. And from that time on, the dog went for walks with him every day with his master without needing the leash. What happened? He offered himself to his master. Before, he had to have that leash to stay within his master's grip, to stay with his master. But now, yes, he's still a servant, and the dog's owner is still his master, and the master still takes care of him. And the dog still goes on walks with him every day in the park, but now no leash is needed. He obeys voluntarily, joyfully. And that's what you must do. If you view and meditate on and understand even just a small fraction of God's mercy towards you, you will voluntarily and joyfully give yourself this a living sacrifice. And Yeshua says, he showed himself, he's the ultimate example, right, of this voluntary submission to God the Father. In fact, he says this in John 10, verse 17. For this reason, my Father loves me, because I lay my life down. I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And this command I receive from my Father. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father showed Yeshua the cup. What's the cup? It's the cup of God's wrath for sin. And, and, and Yeshua begins to experience, in the, in the garden, the night before the crucifixion, he begins to experience the horror of what he would have to endure on the cross. The punishment of what you and I deserve. You've got to be poured out on him. In the garden... The night before the crucifixion, he begins to taste it. This famous 18th century Great Awakening theologian, Jonathan Edwards, he says that if Yeshua only would have first experienced all that, all that the wrath of God entailed, if he had only first experienced it when he was already on the cross, he might have said, well, now that I know what it's like, maybe I shouldn't have come here. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Father gives him a foretaste of what it would cost for Yeshua to atone for your sins and mine. And the Father, in essence, says, do you still want to do this? And Yeshua says, yes. He says in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. 
but, but not my will, but yours be done. Now, why was Yeshua willing to do that? Uh, to offer himself, not just as a living sacrifice, but as a destroyed sacrifice. Why was he willing to take his hands off his life? Only one reason. Out of infinite love for you and for me. Infinite, self-sacrificial, covenant love. And in light of all this, in view of what Yeshua has done for you, will you take your hands off your life for him? Will you give him your whole life and offer and present your life to Yeshua as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual act of worship? Yeshua took his hands off of his life and became a dying sacrifice. And in return, he merely asks you to take your hands off your life and become a living sacrifice. And if you do that, what will flow from you is the newness of life that you have always been looking for. If you keep your hands on your life, you're going to be always angry and always upset and always anxious and always driven, always like that woman who wanted to be the missionary to China before she took her hands off her life. Why did she finally take her hands off her life? Because she knew that Yeshua was both infinitely wise and completely good. So how, so how could she know that? Only one answer for how she knew that. The cross. That's how you know he's infinitely good. That's how you know he's infinitely wise. That's how you know you can trust him. He took his hands off his life for you. And so now you can take your hands off your life for him. You know, lastly, in the authorized version, the King James Version, Romans 12.1, it reads, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, for this is your, quote, reasonable worship. Other translations say it's your spiritual act of worship. It's a very hard Greek word to translate. It's actually the Greek word logicus. It actually means rational or logical. So offer yourself, Paul's saying, as a living sacrifice. Take your hands off your life. It's the only reasonable, it's the only logical, it's the only rational thing for you to do. How can you come to grips with someone who gave himself utterly for you without you giving yourself utterly to him? It's the only reasonable way to respond. To not do so, it's not just a violation of the moral sense. It's a crucifixion of your intelligence. It's as stupid as it is wicked. He took his hands off his life and he fell into nothingness. You take your hands off of your life and you only fall into his everlasting arms of love. Yeshua is the only master who will not consume you. He's the only altar that will give you life and won't kill you. I urge you, my holy brothers and sisters of Etzchayim, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourself mind, body, soul, and spirit as a living sacrifice to the Lord, which is your reasonable act of worship. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. Uh,
I'd like the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Lord, we, we thank you for so loving us that you sent your one and only Son, Messiah Yeshua, to become incarnate here on this earth, to live the life we should have lived but couldn't, to die the death that we should have died, to defeat the enemy of sin and death that we could not defeat. Yeshua, thank you for your atoning death on the tree, for your resurrection to the right hand of the Father. Thank you for drinking the cup of God's wrath that we would have otherwise had poured out upon us. Thank you for eternal life in you. And in view of all of that, God, in light of all of that, we now offer, we now present our whole selves, body, mind, emotions, will, spirit, to you. We lay our lives down as a living sacrifice. Uh, we die to ourselves, and we joyfully and freely serve you all the days of our life. We give you all of our life, Lord, today, every aspect, inner and outer, internal, external, a public and private. We commit to being your servants, Lord, and to follow your example by serving others. We commit to serving our neighbor, not expecting to be served. We acknowledge, Lord, this is simply our spiritual act of worship, our reasonable service. It's what we reasonably ought to do in light of your infinite mercies and goodness and love that you've shown us. So, Lord, we thank you and we bless you. And, and we commit all of this to you today, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.